Brought to you by BedroomBattlefields.com, this is the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Alright then, William, welcome to the podcast. Sorry I just uh, fired in there just as you took a drink of water. People do that to me all the time. Ah, it's okay, that's not a problem at all. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on. No, you're welcome. It's been a, a wee while in the making. We've been back and forward about this for a while, so just going to have a nice chat about playing with wee men, aren't we? So uh, yes. So I am. Um, I, I was thinking we could maybe like just dive in and, and sort of start right at the start with you. You know, um, I think you'd said that you got into forty k like back in the sort of rogue trader era. Is that right? Well, I, I guess like most kind of post-Gen X, pre-millennial kind of age, I guess a lot of our listeners are, are going to be that kind of age. Uh, I got into uh, 40K and fantasy around like Rogue Trader second edition kind of crossover. Uh, but I had grew up like not not poor or deprived, but like not, not very flush with cash or anything like that in my family. So I spent most of my time just hanging around the games workshop and uh, making a nuisance of myself. And if I had a little bit of money, I got a book and just kind of immersed myself in that world. And it was all around that period. And I think it was quite a bit of a cultural phenomenon then because I, I had quite a few peers who were also into it who um, encouraged that. And we, we did play a few games, but it was mostly getting hero quest or, um, or some, some old figures out the boot fair or something and playing on the carpet, you know, <laughs> and playing 40 K second edition through the lens of, uh, you know, an 11 year old's eyes is probably quite a different prospect to playing it now. Um, but it was good fun and it definitely had a massive impact on me. Mm. Uh, I heard, I heard there's like a reminiscence bump from the age of like 11 to 12 through to your mid twenties where you can, you can remember as an adult, you can remember that period the most, it's like most vivid memories and definitely it had a big impact on me. But I guess like a lot of us, like late teens kind of got into other things, you know, music and girls and, and, uh, and whatnot and kind of just dropped it entirely. And it's only relatively recently I've got back into it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there was, there was like a middle section where I got into uh, the fiction. And I, I, I was not a very good student. I wasn't, wasn't very learned. I wasn't well-read or anything. Uh, I just kind of watched TV, played computer games, went to work, minimum wage, stuffing envelopes. And then I started reading the Gaunt's Ghosts books, and that kind of re- reactivated this idea of 40k as a universe I could I could participate in, um, and that's what led me like kind of to what is currently my current focus in the hobby. I it's it's interesting that I've heard that a lot, and I'm the same uh, that folk start um they start reading it's it's like one of these warning signs i suppose they start reading the black library stuff when they've been out the hobby for years and i did this myself i remember i started on all the go trek and felix i did all those and um i remember like i was reading them in bed at night and it was actual paper novels i was getting them second hand or probably like fifth hand and i remember saying to my wife at one point like you know, if I like, if I got back into this, what would you think? And she's like, "Don't, don't bother." And like, fast forward a few years, I'm like, "I'm just painting this eyeball. Leave me alone." <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, I want to, I've got this board over here. That you, <laughs> just, just don't worry about it. It's just behind the couch. Yeah. Like, no <laughs> so it's, well, it's I, funny I, I, that yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just like a gateway back in those books, isn't it? So. Yeah, well, there was a, a very short period, like in my mid twenties, I guess, where I did get briefly back into the hobby, and that was because I met a friend from that that earlier point. And all we would do was just go to the pub and just get obliterated. And, I, and after a few months of that, I was like, like we, I, we have to have some shared interest that's not just going and drinking beer. And we both kind of thought, well, what about what about war games? And we'll do that. And that I didn't get back into Games Workshop games. I, I think Mantic had just released Kings of War, which is like a rank and flank fantasy game, but quite quite simple i guess um and i we, we did that for a little while uh, and that, that was actually really good and it was probably like the first layer of emancipation um from games workshop because I, I don't know about you definitely but when when i was a kid you know games workshop was what was what it was about there was i go you go it was movement weapon skill ballistic skill it was you know two thousand points six by four table that's exactly how it should be done and then this kind of little wedge appeared with kings of war which is which has led me down a road which has ended up in a, in a really rewarding um diversification of uh wargaming and and the interests that it can provide well it provides me personally but i guess it, it offers outside of the games workshop paradigm and i guess you use the same thing right you, you haven't come back and gone straight to games workshop you've diversified into rangers of shadow deep and frostgrave and stargrave and whatnot 
Yeah, I mean, exactly the same for me again. Uh, spookily, like it was uh, Kings of War was my first, uh, you know, when I came back and I was like, well, they've, they've ended Warhammer. I, I don't like the look of this new thing. And then, you know, you Google Warhammer alternatives and the first thing that comes up is Kings of War. So I got into that and got the book and thought, you know, wow, I, this is, I understand this. <laughs> and, you know, I played a few games that, like, I, I don't really play it these days, but I've still got a place in my heart for it, if that makes sense. Mm. I, I've got some old figures from back in the day as well. My uncle gave me some rogue trader figures, like some, some stuff that's very valuable. Uh, and I like, you know, squats and thud guns and rogue trader marines and things that are like really desirable to get a hold of. And like as a kid, I didn't really... I didn't really have anyone to help me join the dots, so I didn't really know. I didn't even know it was Games Workshop at the time, and I'm like, okay, cool. These are these are great. So I like arrange them on my shelf, or then smother them in red enamel paint because they were like really well painted, or set them on fire or whatever. <laughs> they didn't didn't understand like the, the, the context of it all. Um, but coming back to it, I've, I I kept a few, and so I've coming back to it. I've got I still got those, but I I don't play Games Workshop games anymore, and I, I don't feel any of the poorer for it. Um, I got this amazing book called One Hour War Games um, by Neil Thomas, and and it's a historical book. And that's one of the the the, the arc through Gaunt's Ghosts, which is a, the forty k novels about the Imperial Guard into historicals. Was that there was so much in those novels that even to someone, even as a layman, kind of like I said, not very well read at all, I could be like, right, this is a book about all the commanders are in a big manor house. And then all the all the guard are going up to the front lines, and it's all trenches and poison gas and artillery and mud and and endless slaughter, and it's 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 obviously something to do with World War One. And then I started to like, okay, well, let me look at the source of that. And it's a bit like as you get a bit older, you realise that forty k is like all like Judge Dread and Dune all kind of mixed together in like this 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 uh, crucible that becomes forty k. So I started thinking the same thing about the the sources of inspiration for these books, and got got interested in history in general and then i realized that these two things can combine and i had looked at things like war games illustrated or something when i was a bit younger you know couldn't get white dwarf so i just picked this thing up and just being so bored like it, it, it was it was so dry and so uninteresting i don't know if that was a reflection of where war gaming historical war gaming was at the time, or just because i was so used to this like dialed up to 11 maximum that games workshop provides you know, there is like there is literally nothing which is average. Every everything is like the biggest, the most deadly, the most explosive, the the most uh, torturous. You know, it's psychic powers and planets exploding and stuff like. So so going and looking at something which is, by comparison, fairly mundane was was completely unpalatable. But coming through kind of a different way, uh, and 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 through through the the. Um, the paradigm of of these Gaunt's ghost novels, and there's there's like lots of different ones. Like this is clearly Stalingrad. This is this is Verdun, and so on. And and then getting into him into it that way. And content creators like Dan Carlin does hardcore history, very Hollywood history, but like very accessible. I realised that actually there's there's so much in this world that you can um, in the in the real world that you can in, you can enjoy th- through wargaming. Um, that it's, de- it's definitely worth looking into. And early on, I tried DBA, which is a very like uh, chess-like game, which I didn't really resonate with. But this this like one-hour war games book, um, it's uh, it, the first half of it is I think five rule sets from ancients through to modern day or early twentieth century, uh, and then the other half is scenarios. And the rules are super duper simple. You know, you can put them on a, a like one page quite easily, and that got me back into the hobby as an adult in a really real way because you know Neil, the guy the author says well you know the the idea of a perry twins kind of table tennis size table with a thousand 28 millimeter troops is is all well and good but the average person doesn't have the money or the time or whatever for that and actually um you can look at this this one hour war games well um you you've got a maximum i think of six units in the game and the units can be as big as you want but ultimately it's six objects six uh, individual things, uh, you know, whether they're mortars and tanks or uh, spearmen or pikemen or whatever it is. Um, and you play on a, like a two by two or a three by three table, and it's very highly narrative. So you, you have, like I said, 30 scenarios in. There's like 10 scenarios about scouting and engagements and escalations and things. And then 10 scenarios about um, a, uh, a fight that's already in progress and you're kind of you're reinforcing it or something's changed in that fight. And then another 10 about de-escalation. 
Um, and you can like simulate these really interesting narrative, uh, context-driven games really quickly. And I played a number of historical rule sets. I think it was for the Napoleonic period, so you know, horse and muskets and chasseurs and cuirassier and stuff like that. Uh, and I played loads of different rules, and including this one, which is, like I said, super simple, very quick. And actually, it was th- this super simple one was the most enjoyable. And all the results were roughly the same, but this one didn't require me to have bits of paper to note things down. I didn't have to have like, loads of unit stats or anything. Um, and it was an absolute revelation to realize I could have wargaming, especially in a historical context, which is typically considered to be quite uh, onerous when it comes to um, crunch. Yeah, well, we, I think you'll find that the Prussian uh, uh, Jaegers had, uh, you know, uh, they didn't, they had rifled muskets at a ratio of one to 10. So uh, in theory, you should, you know, like there's none of that really. It's, it's, it's super duper simple. Um, but it gives you a prototypical outcome. You know, like you, you, can, you can look at it and you can say, well, these are spearmen and they're going up against... Uh, slingers and and bowmen you you can instinctively know what that relationship is going to look like and play it out and um that the the strategy is around managing the relationships between those units that you have available to yourself rather than through special rules and these really like minor distinctions and come up with a super enjoyable game as well mm-hmm. so i absolutely love this like one hour war games book it looks like you were um, you playing with two mil. Like I know you've got ten mil as well, but like two mil, I've I've heard very few folk getting into two mil. What's the what's the deal there? So so two mil historically has been um, the, the the area most dominated by a company called Irregular, and they do a, a whole army, you know, many times larger in in terms of the people it's meant to represent many many times larger than a, than a fantasy army uh, I've, i think i bought two starter armies for the for, for ultimately what's meant to represent french napoleonic troops but it really is they're, they're little blocks they, they look like un, almost like un, undifferentiated blobs um but not quite and it's it represents thou- literally thousands of figures so you think if you've got you've got a spearman unit in Warhammer Fantasy and it's twelve people, or your unit in uh, in two mil might be um, only four bases, like if you know, four small bases, you know, there's like twenty five mil bases or something. Um, but that might rep- represent like four or five. It will not not just represent, but it it will depict like four or five hundred figures. So you can you really zoom out and you just you can get this absolutely f- like breathtaking panorama of a battlefield and obviously the ranges are smaller but you have whole towns and villages represented on the tabletop they're not just like two buildings this is a city actually you know the city itself is you know maybe six or eight inches wide not city but like a town maybe six or eight inches wide and you can garrison it and so on and there are rules which support that um Bluka and absolute emperor they, they they're designed around scales of that kind but the great thing about about uh, of two mil is that it's super simple to paint very cheap very affordable gives you a great if you're if you want to see this the grand aspect it's it's, it's fantastic but historical war games generally unlike most other especially games that have um uh, you know closed systems like game like games workshop or mantic or whatever they they're typically scale agnostic most people go 15 mil I know you've you started fifteen mil, right? Um, but you as long as the normally you use base widths as the unit of measurement, or if not, there's a proxy for that. So however wide your regiments are, you know. So if you're talking Warhammer Fantasy, you've got five figures at the front. That's a hundred. That's a hundred mil, maybe, or um, hundred twenty-five mil. That's your. That's your. The width of that unit is the unit which all other things happen, like how far you move, how far you shoot, and so on. So you can zoom in and zoom out really easily. I actually I use ten mil as my my main scale because I because I actually went down. It's a bit like uh, when in that period where I wasn't into wargaming, I got really into like heavy metal. And, uh, I I don't know what about my character that just means I have to just push to the absolute extreme for everything as as quickly as possible, regardless of whether I enjoy it. So I went like straight to Swedish death metal, and, and you know it was absolutely unlistenable. But I was you know that was the most that was the the, the the most extreme and so for wargaming i was like right well i want i want the, the smallest and i want the most scope and i want the most complex and then like explore all these options I actually found out that like if you want to re- the most balanced game it's ultimately not a war game right it's like go play go or chess or something um if you want the most crunch you know play um 
Have you heard of Advanced Squad Leader? It's 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 like a, it's like it's not a miniatures game. It's a counter game, but the idea that like it is down to individuals. Uh, you know, you can capture somebody of the opponent and interrogate them and find out the location of other hidden forces on the same map that exist. Uh, and it, it's it's so crunchy. There's like four or five different firing phases in each turn. And it's, if you want to have strategy and tactics, like that's the game. It's not it's not with figures actually. Um, so that's why I went with two mil because I was like, well, this is, I'll get the most, I'll get the most number of forces on the battlefield. But I realized I needed something. I needed, I, I couldn't relate to it because they really are just blobs, especially if you're standing at kind of like normal distance from a table. So I compromised at 10 mil. And I, I personally think 10 mil is the absolute king of scales. And I mentioned this on the Discord and uh, there was, there was like a, spirited discussion about how true that was <laughs> but, but in my mind you get the, the the ease of painting of six mil by, by by a massive amount but because they're double the size of six mil or just under double the size um they they capture the light a lot more easily i don't know if you've noticed but if you look at six mil on the table it tends to be quite dark unless you really have great lighting which i don't and um so you have to paint the figures super super bright to stand out um, so with 10 mil, you have way less of that effect and you can do a little bit of, you can't really do modeling on it. Really. You, you kind of get the figures as they are and you arrange them as you want, but, um, they, they look individual. So I've got quite, a, I said quite a few, I've got like a big English civil war thing and I'm starting a 18th century horse and musket thing in, in 10 mil. And I, I tried, <laughs> yeah, I know you've done ranges of, of shadow deep in 28, um, and a song of blazing heroes. And I was, I got so wrapped up in this idea that I wanted to do um, more in depth, you know, rather than rather than unit versus unit, I wanted individuals and you know, almost that kind of RPG thing. And I, I looked at five leagues to the borderlands, and I printed up some figures in fifteen mil and played that. And so fifteen mil figures on a ten mil scenery actually works out okay, and it looks really great. Uh, but I, I realized that's just not for me at all. Like ten, ten, honestly, ten rank and flank ten mil is absolutely where it's at. Do you think there's much, I mean, there's five mil a difference. I was going to say, do you think there's much difference between 10 and 15? Well, it's, well, it's like well, it's like the cube, isn't it? It's not just, that's just one direction, five mil in one direction, but then five mil in another direction and five mil in another direction. So it's it's like, in terms of mass, 15 mil is way bigger than 10 mil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I'm not getting a new scale, so. <laughs> not another that, one. That, that horse is bolted. Eh? <laughs> Well, yeah, but yeah, I guess if, you, if you're primarily into like individual casualty removal, which is what, what you've shown on your blog, you've got the, the individually based 15 mil miniatures, right? Individual casualty removal. Once when someone dies, you take them off. Um, and that's like, that's definitely a Warhammer fantasy, one page rules type mechanism, which is obviously super valid. Um, but it's not something I'm that interested in. Typically, I'm looking at unit degradation. And so I'm, I have a unit of however many bases, so like one, two, three or four bases is a unit. And that unit just more or less stays, in, on terms of the tabletop at least, stays as it is. I maybe have a dice to represent how much damage it's taken. Uh, I use um, a, the Rampant rule set, so Dragon Rampant, Lion Rampant, Pikeman's Lament. And the only uh, degradation a unit takes is when it has more than 50% casualties. So Because I, I don't remove any figures, I just put a little casualty marker next to them and that says, okay, well, they've taken this amount of damage and they're, they're less efficient uh, in fighting or less resilient or whatever it is. Um, and that works well f- in terms of time as well, because you're not moving individual figures, you're not re-ranking. That works. That works pretty well too. I am. It's it's funny that I've done that because the rule sets that I would play with. I mean, we've talked about Kings of War, um, Mayhem. I know you've tried that, and we'll, we'll maybe talk about that in a second. But that's pretty much multi-base. But it was only an aesthetic thing for me. I thought, you know, I want to make I want to make these armies look a bit like. They did in White Dwarf in the nineties at twenty eight, but uh, I'm not going to be taking the figures off. So it's actually stupid that I'm doing that. But you know, I am pretty stupid. So, uh, well, it was the the, the chap from Chain, uh, not Chain of Command, Crown of Command, who 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 was like so fastidiously replicating White Dwarf photographs that you know the different heavy metal studio painters painting the bases with slightly different paints. Uh, for the for like a certain regiment and you can see in the photographs that the bases are different colors mm-hmm. and then um 
think it's I think it's Josh. Josh he's yeah. he, he's um he's then replicating the difference in tone in his version of those figures, uh, which is you've got to admire the um, the tenacity and the, the attention to detail. Um, but that's not my bag at all. Did you know that just like every other podcast out there, this show has its very own Patreon? But this is no ordinary Patreon. It's actually the worst Patreon ever. That's right, there's no rewards, no extras, no bonus content, no early access, no shout-outs and no thank-yous. I'll just take the money and quietly get on with making the show. Not that there's any money to take because hardly anyone's pledging to the thing. Like I say, it's the worst Patreon ever. Find it at bedroombattlefields.com slash worst Patreon ever. That's all one word, worst Patreon ever. Now, back to the show. It worries me that that people could see such differences in colours because I've talked about it before, like I'm pretty badly colourblind and I wonder when I put photos of stuff I've painted up, like it looks looks fine to me, but I wonder like that there are things here I can't see that must look outrageous. So, um, aye, but what can you do? What can you do? Mm. Um, Mayhem, you 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 weren't you weren't that keen on it, were you? So I I've definitely churned through my uh, my uh, assortment of of rules. Uh, like I, I don't say I, I'm collecting them necessarily. I so I I play almost entirely solo. And I would say I would say like as a rule I play solo. I got I got my my stepbrother's kind of into it. And if I set everything up and he happens to be here, then he'll play a game. But generally I'm playing against myself. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, so I don't have another person to, to, to help me with the rules or, or what, what I'm doing wrong. And that's kind of part of the reason why I think the, the one hour wargame stuff is so good. And another book called, uh, the solo wargaming guide, which is a super thin book, but it, it talks about campaigns and, um, in that it talks about the context around, you know, you don't just have a battle that you just smash people together and then one wins and one loses and that's the end of it because that gets boring very quickly, but you have context around it, which then drives a narrative and the, the fact that, you know, you, you are outnumbered 10 to 1 and you 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 are absolutely annihilated, but you you defended a, an area long enough for the rest of your army to be in a better position for some other battle gives you the justification for that. So I've tested lots of different rules. Um and I'm pretty merciless when it comes to uh, what I enjoy in a rule set and what I what I don't. I definitely found that the the mayhem rules seemed like they were going to be really good. Um, I, I created a quick reference sheet for it. I created like a flow diagram, uh, but actually, I'm for that kind of thing. I really like the rampant rules, and I, I didn't see anything that mayhem really added to the mix um, personally. And that's that's not saying there's anything wrong with them uh yeah at one man's uh, uh wine is another man's vinegar and all that i just it, it just didn't gel with me then there's loads of other rules that that are available that i i personally enjoy more i mean it's part of the part of the issue i have with sci-fi and fantasy and this is a fantasy game and I, i've painted up two war master scale like 10 millimeter uh, armies chaos towards and undead and that's what i was using in in the battles i played and i've still got to play war master so i'll put that to the side for a second but in general, in general, I th- I kind of feel that there's like not much is really added to a war game when it's like, okay, one of the people is blue haired and pointy eared and the other people are humans, but they've got like relatively similar statistics in the game and they do similar things and they've both got similar weapons and they both fight in a very similar way. It kind of feels like there's, there's extra stuff in here that we don't really need. I feel like sci-fi and fantasy is real strength is in the truly bizarre like lovecraftian apocalyptic cosmic horror uh, where it is mind wrenching about what's going on you know imagine demon worlds and the eye of terror like how you, you can't model on a tabletop really or in sci-fi uh, the shrike from hyperion you know the liquid metal and multi-dimensional or, or um, manipulating the metric tensor and relativistic weapons and time dilation, uh, all this stuff with, that you see in sci-fi where your mind is just stretched in ways that it isn't through conventional fiction. Um, and I feel that you're kind of doing a disservice to those genres by pushing them into the same paradigm as the real world. Cause the real world intrinsically has, you know, it's, it's, it's quote unquote balanced for what that, that, you know, you, you you instinctively know the strength of a bloody Sherman tank against a, a, a pike phalanx. You're like you know their relationship natively. You don't have to look at the special rules. Uh, there's so much depth to it all. You can you can go 
very into the details and very accurate, or you can zoom right out. And I, I, there's, I feel there's precious little added by that kind of Star Trek anthropomorphic alien or, you know, evil humans with green skin um, in a rule set. So because Mayhem didn't really set a fire under me, I, I was quite quick to uh, just put it aside. But I did like Dragon Rampant. And Dragon Rampant is all, is a fantasy game. And it's like, I've just said, you know, well, well, these are dire wolves, but they act exactly the same as light cavalry in every other game. But in this game, they're dire wolves or they're lesser beasts or whatever. Um, and that, that was enjoyable. But I think that was mostly through the game system rather than what it's representing necessarily. Mm. Have you played any of the rampant games? No, but funnily enough, um, last night I was reading, I got, I get my copy of miniature board games magazine every, every month. And there was a, there was a cool article. I don't have the magazine on me there now because I wish I could credit the author because they had a, I I mean, I I could tell by the name kind of that it's about fighting dragons, but the gist of this article was that he wanted to have a war band going up against a single dragon and what he decided to do again i'm assuming this was his own idea but to make it a bit more interesting he broke the parts of the dragon up and it basically a war band so it was like claw claw head leg leg tail and you basically got a war band there you know you could destroy a wing you could destroy the tail i think you had to destroy the head to kill it so i thought that was a really cool idea just uh, it shows you the, the different creative ways that you could come up with, you know, just this big powerful monster versus, you know, a, a war band. So is it, I take it with Dragon Rampant, you're doing more than just fighting a single dragon then, is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is, is like, and I guess I'm preaching to the choir here, to you and to your general audience, which is escaping that the, the, the GW-centric rules about what a game should be and how it should be laid out. Um, and it's not. It's, this is this is not related to just historical war games. But you look at and you look at measureless systems, where it's grids, diceless systems when it's cards, um, uh, different turn orders. You know, in this in Dragon Rampant, like one of the major things that it does is the command and control friction. So there's a really quite well known independent wargaming company called Two Fat Lardies, and they really focus on. The command and control aspects so you don't your whole army doesn't always act every turn you know you have to you have to pick and choose and so some games do it by rolling a dice and you get this many points and that many points represents how many orders you can give or whatever uh, in the rampant system um you basically roll each unit each class of unit has a number of orders it can take like move attack shoot or something and they have target numbers for those orders. So, for example, a, a pike unit or a, a, I don't know, a, a unit of knights might be really good at defending and really rubbish at moving around. So you have to decide what order you're going to give and then roll the dice to see if it, if it takes that order or not. And if you fail, sometimes the turn moves to your opponent. So you've got to be, you've got to be careful about what you're doing and how much risk you want to take and how much luck you want to, you want to try and uh, push to make the things happen that you want to happen. Um, and, and that's, that, I think that's where, where Dragon Rampant really shines. And t- in, in theory, or the Rampant series in general, in theory, it's a skirmish game. So you're meant to have like six to 12 miniatures in each unit, single based, 28 millimeter, blah, blah, blah. But I don't do that at all. I just use my, my regiment bases and I have two or three bases for each unit and another another thing this emancipation of the need to adhere to someone else's def- definition of how rules work i'm just like well i'm just going to use these regiment bases and actually it works perfectly fine there's there's no there's nothing about it that is um that is compromised by that at all and, and actually funny enough the, the one hour war games book has got a particular way of managing casualties and someone said oh yeah check this one out and someone has just re they've looked at all the statistics about how that works and they've rewritten it in a in a much simpler way so you just literally pull out that entire system about taking casualties and plug in a different one and it just works, works perfectly fine so i can see why something like dragon rampant saying well we're gonna have a whole a, a, a massive creature as a as a as a war band effectively uh, would work really well because mm. there's so much so, so much of that push and pull oh you, you like this campaign system from this book but you like the magic system from this book and you like the order system from this thing well you can just mash them all together and you, there's some context is required obviously like you, you can't just as as a rote beginner you can't you don't even know what you don't know um but 
very quickly you kind of understand what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy like for me there's a there's a really fantastic napoleonic game called la salle um, by a guy called sam mustafa and it's it's widely acclaimed as one of the best napoleonic games there is because you each you, you roll a dice each and that's how many orders each side gets and you get pluses and minuses and whatnot and um but then and you can start doing stuff and some stuff when you're really far back from the front lines and things like maybe moving outside of visibility or whatever you can just do but as soon as you get really close to an enemy yeah the enemy once you've completed your order whatever it is that you're volley fire or you're advancing or whatever the enemy if you're if you're close enough can interrupt your turn and take the initiative and they can do something so then they can do something out in the back lines as well and they can start moving their stuff or they can immediately try and counteract what you're doing uh, but then risk you interrupting them after. And, and so there's this constant back and forth through the turn. And that that is, uh, you know, it, it, playing with another player, that is absolutely the most intense gaming um, through, like the, the system is very simple, but very, very intense. But as a solo player, it's abysmal because I, 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 can't, I can't manage in my head the both me as player one making an action and deciding knowing ahead of time that player two i.e my, also myself is going to interrupt that action at the same time uh, and so that just doesn't work at all so actually i prefer the i go you go or the hybrid i go you go systems because it's a, it's a lot simpler to play solo and you can you can totally do that like the rampant system alternate activations alternate everything use the order system whatever you want it's really plug and play really enjoyable with your solo games, do you uh, do you like to start and finish on the same day? Do you ever have just a game set up that you you come back to and add a wee bit? And, uh... Well, <laughs> well, you know, talking about this 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 book where it talks about you know the mod the modern war gamer is not the one who has the in the billiards room we just uh, put a couple of sheets of eight by four on top of the uh, on top of the tables and we played out a game of uh, Molwitz in seventeen forty and it took you know all weekend like I don't think anyone it's a great idea. Everyone wants to see that stuff, but I think in reality, no one ever does that. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely don't. So I used to be on the corner of the dining table. A three by three board it can fit on the end of a dining table, okay. Uh, but more recently, I've got some fold up tables in my office, and so I'll play there. Um, but that's that's what's what's kind of good about solo gaming is that you can absolutely play to your own tempo. If you're just bored of a game, like okay, fine, I'm just gonna just pack this away now. But you don't have to play through it. You can start whenever you want. You can stop for stop for refreshments whenever you want. And the idea that you're, you know, you're tipping your hand one way or the other, I, I think I think it's a bit patently false. I think that's that's something made up by people who don't want to try it because, especially if you've got context around the game, if it's just an exhibition match equivalent, it's it's more difficult because you know the things you've just painted are your favorite, or you don't really care about the other side or whatever it is. It's more difficult, um, but you can you can you can play it all in one go, and it's quite quick. Especially if you're using a rule set like One Hour War Games. I've I have used others, and some have taken quite a while. Like I've got a, a small YouTube channel, and I, I played a, a a few games that went on and on and on. There's a, a great naval war game. And if you're familiar with Battletech, Battletech kind of originated from naval war games where you have like unit cards and there's such a density of action. Like you might only have like three miniatures on the table, but each of those miniatures has like 50 hit points and they've got 10 guns and they've got all these different arcs and dice rolls and modifiers for different things going on. Um, and I play uh, the games, whenever I describe them, I get really excited. But actually when you play them, they're, I don't want to say they're dull. They, they do drag on a little. Like Battletech, I guess, to a degree. Um, and that's probably the longest games I've played. And I've, I've recorded some of them and, and edited them down so much um, to try and make them watchable. And so I, I probably don't play, don't play those games anymore. I tend to play small games. And if I need to play big games, I might play like the left wing of a battle and then play the right wing of a battle. You know, like, like play play two sides or or play play them in sequence rather than... No, play them chronologically in sequence, i.e. the engagement, the, the 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 main combat, and then the disengagement afterwards, you know, the route or the retreat or whatever it is, um, rather than playing one game, which is which lasts a very long time. Hmm. Tell me a wee bit about your YouTube channel, Williams War Games. When did you, when did you kick that off? Um, so I, I had a, a video on my, a, a personal channel about a, a Song of Blades and Heroes, 
which I know you've played as well. Um, and that was way, way back in the day. And I realized that it was like sandwiched amongst me playing songs on the guitar and stuff like that. It was completely impractical. So I split that into a separate channel because people were still commenting on it and it was getting some traction. Um, and then I, 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 a bit like having a, a diary um, or a, a vlog about recording what you've been doing. I wanted to create a, a, a channel which would document the war games I was playing and ideally the campaigns that I'm playing. So I, I've, I've created the, the seed of a number of campaigns, um, but it's only now now that I've really got a bit of space I can set things up repeatedly and film them when I've got good lighting and so on. I can, I can, I can get into the action and the idea would be to to show uh, a campaign or something over time I, i've got a, a i say it's popular it's maybe too strong a word i've got a bigger channel which is an, one of my other hobbies and i enjoy doing that as well and it's you often um hear the the aphorism that you, you know, that you only learn through teaching and it, i don't i'm not going to pretend like i'm teaching anything i i'm not a historian i'm a fan of history i'm not a great war gamer i just like war games i'm not a great painter or anything like that but describing what you're doing and talking about it and, and showing it, it, it helps to reinforce lessons. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely get enjoyment from that too. Do you tend to record every game you play or just pick and choose certain games? I, I, if I'm, I definitely won't record the first game of a certain rule set I'm playing because <laughs> that, that tends to be lots of, uh, mm, oh, oh no. And then going back through the book and spending lots of time cross-referencing, um, uh, having said that, the Pikeman's Lament games I played, which is English Civil War, I think I played one one quick game against myself, and then I started recording. Um, so, so def definitely not all. Uh, I, I've, I'm debating the relative merits of a blog type approach, you know, like White Dwarf article, you know, writing out the bit of fluff and then describing the battles, photographs, diagrams, and stuff, um, which you can also do in book form, obviously, or a video. And I, and I definitely fluctuate between the two because i i'm i i for example when, when you post something on your blog i read it like generally um but if you posted a video i wouldn't always have time to watch your video like synchronously you know that that, that it's a bit like leaving a voice message versus texting somebody and so i enjoy both equally and i, I can't tell which i should stick with mm. what about a uh, like actually recording i mean I, i've never recorded that like visually recorded a, a battle report um there'll, there'll be lots of things to consider won't there like lighting and stuff like that and uh, are you using like a single camera and camera angle or are you kind of what's what's the kind of setup well it's 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 extremely rudimentary and i deliberately keep it so uh you look at someone like um Grimdark City, I think they're called now, um, or, or or guerrilla miniatures, or mini wargaming, or whatever, and they got special effects and lighting and you know dry ice and camp panning and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I haven't got time for that. Uh, you know, I there I I I you know how you're looking for an answer to something and you Google it for a little while and you're like really worried that you're going to get the wrong answer, but then after ten minutes of googling, you still haven't found out what that answer is. The chances are that most people, if they care at all, won't do as much research as you. So actually, it probably doesn't matter. And so I have looked at, I have watched videos that have been filmed with someone holding their camera and, and waving it around in portrait mode and, and found enjoyment to a degree out of them. So I kind of figure that it might be nice to have to have all the extra like studio lighting and, and baffles and the, the fancy microphone and the, and the SLR camera and the you know, multiple camera angles and so on. But actually, I think if you can tell a compelling story and you can, um, you don't have to change the camera angle. I tend, to, I tend to zoom in as the battle starts. I'm way out because I'm trying to show everything and then progressively get narrower and narrower. Um, but that's only two or three times I'll adjust where the camera is maybe total a little tripod that sits next to it I've got a lamp that I put above the above the table which has just got like a daylight bulb in it that's that's literally it um I'm, I'm reminded of like the the talking of Stalingrad there's a book about uh no Berlin it's called Berlin and it's about the the Red Army's advance on Berlin in World War II and it starts out with like the army group and then slowly slowly narrows and focus down to the, the last tank and the last group of people that that are involved in the conflict, you know, actively fighting. And I feel that when a war game does that, rather than just uh, 
not necessarily as a as a battle of attrition, but when when the the focus gets narrower and narrower until there's a there's a crux, you know, like a uh, a focal point. I think that's very rewarding entirely, and so I kind of mimic that, I guess, with zooming in. But that's that's as far as I'm going. I did try and add special effects, you know, like sound effects, and someone said, "Yeah, that's super annoying." And so, so thanks. <laughs> but they they did also say, "Well, it's it's nice that you don't sound like you're being you know put through this against your will," um, which I think, and that and maybe that's the um, the the province of historical wargaming, and that that there is a perception at least that the people who play it are old and gray and boring and um and you know they're they're very uh, focused on you know, the exact color of the facings of the uh the the bayern second infantry brigade or whatever you know like i, I don't think that's actually true uh, but there's definitely a, a perception of that there's like a legacy of that and all that you have to be a historian to do it so when i'd like to think when someone is a bit more upbeat about it and a bit a bit more laissez-faire about how it goes it's maybe more interesting for the viewer so that's what i try and do what are you what are you working on at the moment like painting wise or building wise so like primarily focus on on 10 mil so i've just finished a chaos dwarf army after talking about how i don't think pointy haired uh, blue skin people add that much i did really want to try warmaster Excuse me. So I have I've painted up a Chaos Dwarf army, and I've got an Undead army as well. And I, I will kind of like smash them against each other at some point. But I, I've already the the, the 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 Caprice has already fled. So um, there's a fantastic. Uh, I, I've recently got a 3D printer like a few months ago, and it's opened up the world to me, especially for 10 mil because 10 mil has great manufacturers in Pentracken, um, but they also have uh, a lot of companies will make six mil. STLs on on like my manufacturing, which you can take and just rescale or 15 mil and scale down, for example. Um, so you can get a lot more variety through 3D printing than you can commercially. And that's that's not just for 10 mil, but it is particularly well felt in 10 mil because it's not as common. So I've there's a great guy who's done called I think the Army Forger who's done a big medieval battlefield set. So it's like tents and uh, ruined buildings and and uh, what are the catapult things called? Um, trebuchets. Trebuchet, yes. Multiple trebuchets and battering rams and whatnot. So I I have managed to avoid doing any medieval stuff so far. I don't know how long that will last, uh, but I've printed out some some burnout buildings that will that will form part of a uh, some scenery. So I've been building a little bit of scenery recently as well, like uh, fields and hedges and stuff. Because I think we all we all have the, the the mat or the board, and then we have maybe a couple of trees, maybe like the one the one solitary building that we use in everything. <laughs> so so for me, I've been trying to make it a little bit more varied. So that's that's what I've been focusing on. And this these two mil Napoleonic horse and musket stuff, I really enjoy the relationship between the units in that era because you've got the the cannons which will obliterate the infantry um, if they're in close order. And then the infantry in close order will defeat the cavalry and the cavalry will defeat the infantry in, in open order. And the open order in, uh, infantry will defeat the, the cannons. Like there's, there's like a relation, a very obvious relationship between all the units there um, that, so that you can, it's very easy to understand. I, 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 like, I definitely appreciate that. But I don't like the, the two mil stuff, although it's really, really impressive um, in, in, in like visually in certain aspects, it doesn't resonate with me as much as it would. And I think like most people, and it's probably to my detriment, I, the impression I have of the Napoleonic period, despite reading the Aubrey Maturin novels, the, um, you know, the, the Captain O'Brien stuff and the, uh, sharp novels. Uh, I just can't. I can't really find myself engaged in the Napoleonic period um, as much as I want. But if I just cast it back another kind of fifty years, where you got tricorn hats and all these like crazy outfits, I don't. I just. I know just enough to be dangerous in that. Like I don't, like, I don't really know much about it at all. But I, I, I'm not. I don't feel kind of penned down to any like real, real specific um, historical. Sp- uh accuracy there at all like, other than gen- like very ge- big generalities so i'm making up some in some invented historical fiction uh armies for the 18th century so very, very similar kind of relationship between units but like 50 years earlier so i've got 
so English Civil War stuff is 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 what's finished, and then this kind of 18th century stuff is starting. There's a chap called Henry Hyde who's recently released a book called Martinstadt, which is about a historical fiction campaign that he he ran in like the 80s, I think, about that period as well. And and I think that period is particularly attractive because there's so it's not just like the Brits and the Americans and the Germans and the Russians like in in the European theatre. Right. There's way more forces involved. I mean, that's like a, a massive oversimplification. But in in that period of like the 18th century, you could basically invent a country, and the the, the layman wouldn't uh, wouldn't know there to be any difference, and it would it would seem very authentic. And that gives like very fertile ground for you to put your mark on something without having to be like a, such a slavish devotee of what actually happened. Getting the red car syndrome there where you mentioning Henry because I just listened to his episode with Josh uh, yesterday and then he, he, he had a book in the, the magazine last night, um, Imaginations, I'm sure the series is called. Yeah, so, yeah that's, that, he, he, that's what happened. I think that's his understanding of how that term has uh, come to be understood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As, as that. And I like the, I've got his War Games campaigns, but I haven't, it's, it's behind me, but it's... Uh, it's like two inches thick. Like this, this um, solo wargame campaign, solo wargaming guide contains campaigns, but it's like uh, it's very thin. You know, uh, what's the book called? Quarter, so- uh, solo, so- solo, solo wargaming campaign. The solo wargaming guide. Yeah, did but, Henry but like, like that? Or- uh, no, no, no. That, this is another chap called uh, William Sylvester. It's, it's basically super, super distilled. You know, you you have ways of running campaigns as an individual um, that use the same kind of mechanisms that Henry does. And Henry's stuff can be run solo as well, definitely. But Henry will allow you to go to the, a level of depth that you would you would think would be impossible to, to, to fathom. Like what the geographical layout of your imaginary country is and thus the distribution of agricultural versus mineral wealth and how that translates to industrialization. And, you know, so many steps behind, you know, how many cannons you can field or how much the, the price of cannonballs is. Um, but you can do that if you so desire. Um, uh, but this this solo wargaming guide is, is, is really... Um, like even if you use it as as multiple people, um, it, it provides a very concise view on how to run a campaign. Definitely, weather. You know, we don't really use weather in war games, do we? But there's a there's a chart in this where you you know you you have your your strategically you have your armies moving around a map, for example, and then you chart the the weather as the weather goes on. And after a certain amount of days, then it becomes more difficult for say artillery to move, and and more easy for. Um, infantry to forage or whatever it is and it changes the, the paradigm or maybe if you've got a uh, a game where you're looking at uh, I, I keep focusing on horse and musket but that's 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 not all i'm interested in but it's a good example of how the you know the if it's really raining then musket fire is going to be really um, a massive detriment for example and you might not be able to bring your guns you've got rules for sieges so if you, you decide that you, you're not going to go in you're not going to fight on the on a on a on the battle and you're going to, you're going to say, stay in your castle or whatever, how long the siege lasts and how many people die. And will you sally forth and try and break the siege? And then, you know, maybe you have a relieving force. And so then you've got like all these little, little hooks for, for tabletop games that you can, you can either adopt and bring on and play a game with them or just let them go by and use the dice or the cards or whatever it is to determine uh, the results. Yeah, like it's interesting, like mentioning things like weather and that. Like, I'm not vastly experienced in solo gaming myself at all, but I, I know Rangers of Shadowdeep relatively well. And then Joe McCulloch has his other book, which is more aimed at Frostgrave. I'm sure it's Perilous Dark. And there's a lot about, you know, if you want to make Frostgrave a solo endeavour, it goes into a lot of that about, because um, it's more a toolkit than like rules or instructions, but he's saying about, you know, you're going to have to fight the conditions a lot rather than just fighting baddies. Like, the baddies are there, you know, and they'll come at you and they'll they'll fight you, but let's try and, you know, you're up against a dungeon here. There's going to be traps, there's going to be difficult conditions, and that that is probably what's going to get you. That's probably what's going to, like, be tougher to overcome than, you know, just a zombie who's walking towards you. So 
lots of different yeah. options there, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, and it doesn't have to be for solo gaming. Like you, you, you can you could just roll the dice and see. You're playing a normal battle. Roll the dice after you've deployed. See what the weather's going to be like. Or maybe it's it's uh, it's dark uh, when you start the battle, and then you have to roll the dice to see when dawn breaks. For example, um, maybe there's a comet that flies overhead, and it gives you know some. You, know, you roll a leadership test on your leader, and whoever succeeds, they think it's an omen that's positive for them, and everyone gets a morale bonus or something. Um, there's all these like <laughs> uh, tertiary, tangential factors which can contribute to uh, a war game that are you know, slightly beyond just the raw statistics that a unit might have. Uh, one one great example was. Um, and if you imagine you've got two armies that are facing each other and one of them is uh, with more light cavalry, which which could be in, like in, the, in the ancient world, you know, so you've got the uh, the Carthaginians who had like great light cavalry and you have the Romans who have got lots of great infantry. Mm-hmm. Well, the light cavalry can screen things. So it, assuming they don't die, <laughs> it means that maybe as the uh, Carthaginian player or as, as, the, as a player with more like cavalry in the high elves or whatever, um, you can deploy, rather than deploying your infantry on the table, you can deploy like post-it notes and uh, write what the units are on the back of the post-it notes. Uh, but then have like maybe two or three blank post-it notes to represent your advantage because you've got cavalry. And so the enemy can't see where your units are. And then only when you turn them over, you reveal actually. Well, they 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 play all the units here to counter me, but I don't actually have any units there. Um, that, that those were those were bluffs, and actually the rest of my army is over here. And that's nothing to do with what the effect they have on the tabletop, but it's one level up from that, like a strategic view. Cool. So it's been a really enjoyable chat, William. Where uh, we've mentioned your YouTube channel and that. So where could the listener find that? And what else could they maybe check out? Where could you send them? So I'm, I'm on the Discord on the Bedroom Battlefields uh, Tabletop Hobbies Podcast Discord. Williams Wargames. Uh, Williams Wargames on YouTube. If you're if you so desire, I won't take it personally. If you don't, I've, I've uh, got different different Wargames uh, battle reports there. Um, as as a kind of call to action for anyone who's even remotely interested in what I've been talking about, I'll just reiterate the, the two books which really sent me on this journey and have led to lots of other things. One Hour Wargames by Neil Thomas, uh, which is a really con- concise and condensed set of rules from the ancient world to the present day, and a bunch of scenarios which you can use in any game. It's invaluable. And Solo Wargaming Campaigns by William Sylvester, which gives you a bunch of context you can put around your games to make them more meaningful and more enjoyable and get miniatures back on the table for game number two of something rather than just uh, leaving it on the wayside. Those are the two things I suggest. Thank you very much. Yeah, I fancy a look at that um, solo. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the old live Amazon thing. Uh, it's, 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 it's called the Solo Wargaming Guide, not the Solo, solo Wargaming Campaigns. Solo War gaming guide um i could get that for 10 pounds 95 i might well just buy that right away because i'm i'm sold on it came out in 2013 10 years ago uh, not that that matters i'm just making an observation mm. both those books uh, have got great bibliographies if you want to if you want to d- dive any further you, they, they all contain a bunch of information henry hyde as you said is a great source uh, but those two they're, they're small books and short books and they'll get set you on the right track and if you're not interested then you don't have to bother with anything else but that's what i would recommend lovely stuff i'm going to dive in because i need I always need more books uh so um, I thank so much for your time, William. Really enjoyable chat. We'll get you on again sometime. We'll catch up and I'll tell you about this book that I'm reading. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. If you enjoy the show, then please do share it with someone else you think might enjoy it too. And be sure to check out our Discord community of like-minded hobbyists, which you could find at bedroombattlefields.com forward slash discord. It'd be great to see you in there.